And now, the starting lineup for Inside Slam. At guard, number 11, from the University of Iowa, standing 4 feet 26 inches, it's the man with the smoothest voice in the commentary box, Mr. Magic, Steve Confino. And at small forward, number 6, standing, well, sometimes because he prefers to sit, Mr. Stats himself, Evan Goldback. This is Inside Slam. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Inside Slam. This is Evan Goldback. This is our last podcast of the year. We're recording this on the 17th of December 2019. It's our Christmas special, and we've got an amazing episode coming up for you today. We've got Luke Longley, one of the greatest ever Australian players and obviously three-time champion for the Chicago Bulls. He's going to be joining us later on the pod. We're going to be talking about our Christmas movies, and Steve and I will be going through our top three favorite movies. But Steve, I can't believe it's our last pod of the year. Good to have you again, Mr. Magic. Oh, good to be here. You know, not only talk about sport, but, you know, anything that it can branch off into, you know, because I've got that type of personality. I can't concentrate on one thing for very long. I've got a feeling you're going to go on some weird rant later in the pod. I don't know why, but... I, I don't know how you know these things already, but I'm feeling pretty weird today. All right, good stuff. All right. Check out more podcasts from Global Story Network. Like Surviving the Impossible, a cinematic podcast that follows the harrowing true story of Nick Yaris, a man who spent over 20 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. What could be worse than being sentenced to death for a crime you did not commit? Knowing you put yourself there all because of a lie. To check out this incredible story, head to globalstorynetwork.com or search Surviving the Impossible wherever you get your podcasts. On the line, we've got Australian great Luke Longley calling in. Luke, really appreciate you joining Inside Slam today. Um, how's Actually, how's the weather over there in, in Perth? Where, where are you these days? I'm uh, five hours south of Perth on the coast, on the south coast. Beautiful. Um, it's a bit warm today. It's crept up over 25, so, you know... <laughs> Hey, is that, it's, it's a nice has repeat. It, is that your property where your closest neighbor is like, you know, 50Ks or something? Oh, I wish that was the case. He's a couple <laughs> of Ks away, yeah. But the closest town is, what is it, about 20 kilometers into town, in the little town that we live near. So it's nice and quiet. And it's on the beach, which is good, and a little surf break um, down there. And lots of fish in the ocean. And relatively, it's become discovered now. It's become a bit of a tourist town, but that's good. It gets local businesses happening denmark it's called oh nice it's a lovely spot to live yeah nice 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 little slice of heaven yeah until we hit till we get our first bushfire this place has got huge forests all around it's gonna be ugly if we get a fire but otherwise it's great well i'm surprised you guys haven't yet it's been like a whole week of 40 degree days over there i saw the guys sweating it out in the cricket has it been where the same where you are no no it's cool down here i'm expecting some rain tomorrow it's probably like i said earlier it's 25 degrees today and it feels hot you know, we're much more sort of moderate down here, which is good. It means you can grow things with less water. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just telling Evan, this is how we've asked you to come on the podcast. I was telling him about the interview we did at uh, Crown Casino a few years back and some of the stories that you were saying. And he was like, oh, let's see if we can get him on. So, um, you know, I want to bore you with the same interview, but maybe some of the stories that we can, you know, can touch upon. But one of the things was um, going from, you know, a, a junior playing basketball AIS I'm, I'm pretty sure you with Andrew and Shane Heal and and that class right there at the AIS 
and uh, going over to college basketball, you know, maybe walk us through that pathway to the NBA that you took. Yeah, so I didn't know it was a pathway to the NBA at the time because no one had done it before. And so I was sort of hacking through uncharted jungle, it felt like. Um, I didn't, NBA wasn't really even my goal. My goal was was boomers. My goal was to be yeah. as good as Larry Sandstock and Ray Borner. Be as versatile as Larry was my goal. So I suppose I was sort of just following my following my nose as I went. And also as a young bloke, I wasn't the standout. I obviously had some physical tools that were obvious because I was seven foot two. But really the standouts in juniors then were Vlahoff and um, a little bit Bradkey, but obviously Shane Hill. Uh, Andrew Gaze is a bit older, but those, those were the guys that if if you're a smart basketballer and you asked who was going to maybe end up in the NBA, you wouldn't have said Luke Longley. Um, well, unless you're Adrian Hurley, who's probably the only one. So I actually accidentally ended up going to college. So I went to the Institute when I was just turned 16 as a way of escaping a, a broken household when mum and dad split up. And at that stage, that was pre-Vlahoff Bradkey. That was sort of Darren Lucas and Graham Cubank and Matty Buck and a bunch of names you probably don't remember unless you're paying attention at that, at that time. So I was very young and very green and didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, and that was that was hard work. Went home, finished year twelve, came back with the Vlahov uh, Bradkey class, and did a, had a junior World Cup then, and that sort of thing. And those are all definitely formative years. And I think that's where I learned to be probably a bit of a pass first type of guy because I was the you know not the talent guy, not the guy taking all the shots. Shane Hill was quite prepared to do that, as was Andrew Vlahov. <laughs> so that sort of I think that. that preset my sort of orientation as a player i always played as a facilitator more than a, you know trying to dominate and criticized that for that at times and even probably by myself but it ended up being a nice fit with chicago in the end um i think so i sort of I landed on my feet and got to chicago college was an adventure i didn't uh i didn't really plan it one of the interesting things i find interesting is my mother, who had separated my father, went to look at the colleges for me. I, she said, I, I'll help you make a decision. And she flew over to America and she went to Hawaii and New Mexico and she came back and she said, I don't mind which one you go to, but I think I'm going to go to Hawaii and do my master's. <laughs> I said, good, that's good, that's easy, mum, I'm going to New Mexico. <laughs> how, how, was um, it, how was the University of New Mexico? Because um, obviously, you know, not, not one of the, I guess, the huge basketball schools, but you, you spent four years there. I mean, you, your averages there. I mean, you're averaging 20 and 10. But I guess we only we only see the one and done these days. You know, these guys they it's college for a year and then they want to get to the NBA as soon as possible. But you know, you spent four whole years there. Um, did that really prepare you? You think better for the NBA than just doing a one on one and done what they do now? Yeah, I certainly did. I certainly wasn't ready for the NBA after my freshman year. I got a lot of pressure to go to the NBA after my junior year, but New, New Mexico hadn't been New Mexico had not been to the. Uh, NCAA tournament for 13 years at that stage. So that was what me and my teammates wanted to do. And we did that. We got to the tournament. We didn't go very far, but we got there. So, yeah, definitely four years prepared. I mean, that was much more the norm back then. But I sort of, it took me that long. And big guys often sort of grow into themselves as players and their bodies quite late. So I think it took me that long to really grow into who I was as a player. Having said that, I wasn't prepared for the NBA. When I got there, I was well and truly underprepared took me a couple of years to find my way in the NBA as records, you know, the record will test. Um, but I loved my college experience. I've never, even in the, even compared to the Bulls years, Bulls years, I think college was the most fun I ever had playing basketball, for sure. 
And we watch players, they look like a tremendous fit for the team that they play for and they're successful and they're known for. You know, I know you played for other teams, but everybody thinks of you as Luke Longley with the Chicago Bulls. But, you know, Mm. when you were traded to the Bulls, did you feel as if, wow, that's going to be a great fit for me? Because, I mean, clearly it was. Yeah, so I was really disenchanted with the NBA playing with Minnesota for two and a half years where it's a three-on-one fast break. The guy with the ball was going to try to get the bucket because he wanted to get out of Minnesota. Was that sort of vibe? <laughs> um, it was. It was. It was. It was every man for himself in the sinking ship sort of a feel. And so it wasn't the kind of basketball that I was suited for or that I enjoyed. I even actually one stage I called Kerry Stokes, who owned the Wildcats at that stage, and said, "Well, will you give me. I'll come back. I'm, I'm done with this." And I was making a million bucks a year, but I was hating my basketball. So. Kerry smartly said, mate, just stick at it, you know. <laughs> um, Aren't you glad he so did? <laughs> I am glad. He, I'm glad he did. And so when I got traded to Chicago, suddenly I arrived at a place where the culture was to practice hard and to share the ball and, you know, spacing and timing and cutting and passing. And I mean, even when Michael was there, that was still the culture, even though we, you know, the, the end point was – more predictable but so it was like arriving in bar it was going from basketball purgatory to basketball heaven as far as i was concerned um and phil jackson was very clearly in control of what we're doing and had a big vision and put guys in in roles that suited them rather than you know i don't know bag them for things they couldn't do so yeah it was a very constructive coach like that and and that suited me too i didn't ever respond very well to the yellows and screamers i still don't so yeah i certainly felt like i had arrived in a place that that i liked a but also where my game fit and even michael in the end valued my game based on how well it suited what we're doing so well didn't he didn't he tell you that uh, i think you were injured one time and then he was telling you to hurry up to come back from your injury because no one was setting screens for him (laughs) well i think he did he definitely figured out that no one set as good a screen as i did yeah Uh, and i do claim i claimed recently that his scoring average went down over that period i was injured (laughs) but i can't remember if that's a fact or if that's just my own Self-propaganda, but I'm told I'm going to claim it anyway. No, absolutely, absolutely. It'd be nice to check, actually. Yeah, well, we we actually should check that. We'll um, we'll have to come back to that one. But in regards to, and you just touched on it in terms of guys knowing their roles, uh, and you know, you said you you fit into that um, Bulls organization, and everybody had their role. Obviously, you know, you had Michael as the go-to guy. You know, you had Scotty as he's the Robin to the Batman type thing. But were there were there guys that kind of wanted to be more than what they were with the Bulls or was everybody happy to let Phil and kind of Michael run the show and everybody just kind of buys in? Because I I really see in today's NBA, it's almost like every guy wants to be the guy. Even if they're a a half-decent role player, they want to go to a place to get better, to get better. Nobody really wants to be that role player anymore. They're just kind of wanting to lift their own personal profile. But it seems from the outside looking in, that everyone in, in the, at the Bulls at that time just really bought into their role. They did, and guys that came in and, and got frustrated and, and didn't understand the way that we played didn't last very long. You know, they'd be moved on fairly quickly in one season, and and there was a plenty of that. You know, there's plenty of that. And but by the same token, at practice, you needed guys that challenged MJ and, MJ and Scotty and played hard against them. Scott Burrell was a good example of that, mm-hmm. and you know he was good for us in that regard. I think people were less concerned in those days about their brand 
I think the social media thing and the personal brand thing and that whole awareness of your public persona has really increased with social media. Yeah. So I think that probably has a, uh, a, a poor impact on how guys feel about playing a role and, you know, on their on their social media page says, you know, a guy that makes others look better is not what they want to have. Um, having said that, there are guys in the league who are playing good roles. I just think there's, you know, probably maybe less of it. I don't think you'll see any championship teams that don't have good role players. I think that's partly what it takes, especially on teams that run a sort of more of an equal opportunity offense. Yeah. The hero ball teams um, tend not to make the playoffs as much, but also tend not to have role players. Yeah, those role players are making a lot more money nowadays too, so I guess it's pretty rewarding to stay like that. Uh, you know, One of the things you spoke about was um, – you know, Phil Jackson, and some of the names that you've mentioned, completely different personalities. Obviously, a big seven foot two white guy from Australia, and then you've got Dennis Rodman, you know, who's an interesting character, and Michael Jordan, and you know, Steve Kerr. I mean, all those type of personalities, you know, to get them all going in the same direction must have been kind of fun to watch. You know, Phil Jackson working his craft. Yeah, it was. It's interesting. It's more interesting in hindsight at the time. I think it, you know, no matter what the disparate personalities, when you're united by a clear vision and a common goal, the the kooky sort of character thing is well, served us best as a distraction in a long season. It really didn't ever feel like Phil had to wrangle us hard, but perhaps that was because he did such a good job of setting the expectations early in the piece, and also because there was a really clear, you know, leadership in that MJ and Scotty were definitely clearly the leaders of the team, and they set the example by how hard they practiced and, and all that sort of thing. So in hindsight, certainly as I've been coaching and, and now my role with the Kings, and I try to look back and, and sort of chart in my mind what Phil did and how he got us to such a um, good place. And he certainly did it consciously, but it, it didn't seem overt at the time. It sort of just sort of evolved. Um, I think if I had to summarise it, it would be that he had good personal relationships with all the guys and really clear roles and understandings of what he expected and, once you, once you know what's expected of you, it's easy to do a good job. Absolutely. The ambiguity is what makes it difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone talks about Michael being so legendary in the practice in terms of how intense he was. And I, I, it's almost that story of the fish. You know, when you when you first got it, it was, you know, three meters long and then it turns into like this crazy story. But one thing I, I want to ask you, obviously, is there some truth to it? And the second thing I want to ask um, before I want to get into your, your big game against Detroit in 96 was what <laughs> what was Scotty Pippen like in practice? Because he seems to be, and I only see him in the media these days, but he seems to be a very calm character um, I, and, a, and a guy that really, I, he, he was never a guy that was hugely fired up. Only, uh, the only time I really saw him fired up was against the Knicks. Um, I don't know if he hated Patrick Ewing, but what was what was Scotty like in practice? Because I've I mean, I've heard the stories about Michael. What was Scotty like? Well, Scotty was um, very similar to MJ. He was, and he often guarded MJ in practice because those two had a bit of a rivalry going, and that elevated practice having the two best players playing against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I often like to say that our practices were often harder than our games in some of those you know, championship years. Wow. Partly because those two are driving. And then I'd have to match up against Dennis often, which is a real challenge for me and made me better for sure. Scotty was, yeah, he, he wasn't as intense as MJ, but I would say that he was as professional and as dedicated and 
and as as influential in our wins as MJ was. He yep. just, you know, obviously he wasn't the closer that MJ was. But I think you find through the course of the game he did as much work um, for sure. I, I loved playing with Scotty. He was my, without question, my favourite teammate on the court in my whole career. Any part of it, he was the guy that seemed to always drop you the ball when you needed a touch, seemed to always slide over and help you on D when he'd seen you getting beaten. And if you, you know, same thing is if you were having a, a shit couple of weeks, you'd end up having lunch with him and catching up. And just, you just, you know, he was much more involved in the inclusivity part of our group. And he seemed to be aware. I mean, we hung out a bit. So he was, he was obviously tuned into me a little bit because I would hang out with Scotty yep. and enjoyed him a lot. You so, still, yeah. You still talk good. to him? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Oh, I awesome. do. He's, uh, he's enjoying his ESPN gig in LA, which is a new thing for him. So, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, good. You mentioned you just touched on that Dennis was really difficult. I mean, Dennis, he, I mean, they say difficult he, to guard, he difficult to handle. Yeah, six eight, six nine. I mean, he was such an undersized guy, but he, you know, and then and you're someone seven two, but he, you know, guys like Shaq had problems with him. Guys had like De- David Robinson, guys that had a, so much more height on him. What was it that was so difficult about him? Was he just so strong, or was it something else? Well, the strength was certainly part of it. And uh, as was his just his ability to keep going, to go hard for a long time, you know. So uh, he would just play, even in practice, he was just incredibly tenacious and had a huge motor. Um, but the thing about him was he was so – I mean, I used to – I thought of myself as, um, you know, I wasn't the most swollen guy in the league in terms of uh, muscles, but I certainly felt like I was one of the strongest guys getting around. And that's – why I was able to guard Shaq with single coverage mm-hmm. um, was that I was, you know, really quite strong, sort of farmer strong is what um, the guys on the team used to say. So with Shaq, I felt like he was one of the few guys that I could sort of get a bit overpowered by at times, but I felt like I could handle him and he was certainly the benchmark. But in practice against Dennis, trying to box him out and, and manage him was a combination of speed, staying low to the ground and just ridiculous strength. He was yeah, just even if it was jujitsu, I reckon he'd win. He was just <laughs> he's just a physical specimen, and yeah, oh. he he was just good at it. I'm and he was yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, have you seen the the Dennis Rodman thirty for thirty? Because some of that stuff, I mean, it's it's mind bending. Uh, it's just my sorry, mind blowing to think that this guy would be out till six seven o'clock in the morning, have an hour sleep, and then just go to a full practice slash game. And I'm like. It, it, have they just exaggerated this on the 30 for 30 or was it true? Because it just sounds it's, uh, astounding. I haven't seen the 30 for 30, but I can tell you for a fact I take Dennis out of, out of bed on many occasions <laughs> at 8 o'clock in the morning for a, for, for a 9 o'clock practice or 9 o'clock for a 10 o'clock practice. He, he did party late and um, I sort of ran with him for a little while, but my game started to suffer. I just couldn't hang the way I couldn't party the way he partied, and um, so that burned me out pretty quick. And he just—I think it was just the way he was built. I think he—I um, don't know. I think he was probably avoiding something. You know, who knows? I'm not a psychologist, but but yeah, he loved to party, and he could—he was good at it. Okay, right, yeah, he, from the thirty for thirty, he looked incredible at it. You touched on Shaq. I would say that you probably played in the golden era of centers. You know, you had. In the space of a you know five or six year period, you would have had to guard Shaq, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon, Alonzo Mourning, 
And obviously the big one, Greg Ostertag. So, <laughs> <laughs> Mate, but there's other. That's the thing about it. there's other ones in there that you don't even think of, like a Rick Smiths or. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of guys out there that could really get it done any night, you know. So it was. I do think so too. I think that was the end of the the big guy era. Not long after that, and you know the way the game's gone, I don't think we're going to see an era like that for a little while. Even a, you know, Embiid is is a real problem. I can see that, but there's not many Embiid's in the league anymore. So, yeah, I mean, that's how I probably stayed in the league. I mean, it's how I was effective in the league anyway, is that I felt like I could handle, defensively handle those big centres. And then um, I could, I mean, I could hold the post and hit a jumper and all that. So it worked for me, for sure. Who was the who was the best out of those ones I named? Who, was, who do you think's the best? Well, oh, you forgot Tim Duncan, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, of, oh, of, <laughs> of course. But are you, yeah. I mean, and you only got him at the beginning of his career as well. But, yeah, what a, what a machine he is. Yeah, what a guy to leave off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he was – I think we overlapped for five or six years. Who was the best? Well, Shaq was, Shaq was the toughest handle for me. But when I was a rookie, my first couple of years in the league, before David Robinson got – his back became bad, David Robinson was the hardest – for me, just because same thing as Dennis, he was so fast and long. Dennis gave me fifty. I mean, Dennis David Robinson gave me fifty twice. I actually saw him recently, and I reminded him of that, and I was deeply cut because he didn't even remember. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> he remembered me, obviously, but he didn't remember that he scored fifty against me. So I don't know how many times he had fifty in his career, but uh, he was hard. You know, he just long, quick. They really featured him, stronger than he looks. You know. For a light, for a lightly built fellow, he was very strong. Yeah. Okay. Uh, inside and outside game, really hard. Didn't didn't talk shit. Just went about his business. Whereas someone like Shaq, who wanted to chat or talk a little bit, and it's easier to love. I found just I found it easy. I knew what Shaq was going to do, even though it's hard to stop. At least I knew he was going to do. Dave Robinson was much more uh, versatile and hard for me to defend. Okay. There's um there's a bit of footage of you on on YouTube that I saw and it's uh it's where, where you went you went off 16 points in the first quarter against Detroit um I think it was probably Grant Hill's probably first year um do you remember having the you know do you remember those games where you're like okay I'm really on you know you hit, I think it was free throws and and that little sky hook that you hit in that first quarter do, do you remember those games or are there other games that stick in your mind where you're like hey I've really got it going. I feel like you're setting me up here because there's a good story around that game. But before I oh, nice. go into no, that game, <laughs> before I go into that game, I'll tell you that I, I certainly do remember some games. I mean, that year, I think I averaged 13 points and eight rebounds or something. So I had a lot of 20-point games. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember all of them, but I do remember. Obviously, I remember the good ones. That one sticks because I did go off against Detroit, and at halftime, we got in the locker room and. MJ was all over me, and he really he didn't say that much, but he was all over me that day. And, you know, you, I told this story recently on another podcast, so some listeners will be oh, yawning. But um, MJ was all over me and, and basically saying, oh, man, you're playing unbelievable. We can bottle that. We're going to win a championship, and you're the man. And you know, just really getting excited about it. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've arrived. You know, I'm, I'm going to be an all-star. This is fucking it. I'll figure, I've, I've cracked the code. <laughs> I know what to do now. Anyway, what I forgot was that I had three fouls, and in the fourth quarter, I went out and got a foul. A third quarter, I mean, I went out and got a foul straight away and sat on the bench, and I didn't score another bucket the whole game. Oh, wow. Um, so whatever I had at halftime is what I ended the game with, and we went back in the locker room, and NJ was pissed. And Joe's like, that's the last time I'll give you a fucking compliment, you fucking dog, you're right. You know, we still won the game. We didn't lose the game or anything, but... But he, you know, that's how manic MJ is. Instead of he 
felt like that was his, you know, he had caused it. He was, you know, that it was his responsibility that I played badly. Well, they, they, it wasn't, of course, it was, it was bad, bad officiating. They, yeah, exactly. Well, they did a good job at ed- editing the video because uh, on on YouTube because I was like, man, this guy Luke's gone off, and because you know it was all about that first quarter. But I didn't know that you actually ended the uh, the game same as the half. But uh, yeah, that's that's actually quite funny. Yeah. No. Hey, yeah. we don't we don't want to keep you too long, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, I know that you you had a business with you know taking people out on your boat, and you've moved out to the country, and you spoke about uh, Scotty Pippen enjoying his ESPN. Uh, new gig he's really settling into that you know you know have you found your groove now you know nba it's been quite a few years now but uh your nba nba career is over and worked with the australian team you've you know you're you're being a consultant you're i mean have you found your groove have you found your rhythm your 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 post uh career yeah. your post nba career that's a good question steve it certainly took me a while I, I started around with all kinds of different businesses like the one you mentioned that doing um charter surf and fish and dive charters up into New Guinea and up the west coast of Australia and loved that. But I think um, reconnecting with the sport after leaving it alone for so long, reconnecting with the boomers was a really good thing. I remember how important it was for me to be around a group of people striving for something and working towards something. And so, yeah, I do feel like I found my groove. The, the boomers thing I've stepped away from with the coaching with Andre Lamana stepping down. I felt like it was appropriate that I did as well. So, I mean, I've done that for seven years and I'll miss that, but I, I'm, I'm good with it. I'm loving the Sydney Kings opportunity. Uh, it's just nice to be around the game a little bit, even the fact that I'm getting calls from you guys for a podcast, you know, for a long time. I just really basketball in my, in my life and language and, and I love it. I, you know, I guess I forgot how much I loved it. So probably the biggest joy for me, though, is getting around the young guys. I've, I know I'm on record as saying that Aaron Baines kind of got me going again because get around the young guys and have an impact and see that you know, it's pretty rewarding seeing young men get better and and uh, have careers. So I think that's where my sort of groove fits, if you want to call that. But um, nice of you to ask, Stephen. Yeah, I do feel the answer is yes. I think I've, I've found it a bit and I hope I can find other ways to keep contributing. Yeah, I'm really happy for I mean, I feel the same, you know, like um, I'm not doing the NBL games um, as a commentator, but getting to do the podcast. And just like you said, it's connecting with the young guys. They'll say something like, oh, yeah, I listen to your podcast and I feel, get really charged up that, you know, that, that I'm still involved in the game and, and still relevant. It's, it's a great feeling. So still, mm, well, the, still feel part it, of it. The NBL commentary misses you, man. I think we need to start a petition because I agree. Get you, get you back involved. For sure, I but, uh, I 100% agree with that, Luke. I was actually at the uh, the Sydney Kings Cairns Taipan match. I actually I actually met you last week. Um, I was with that big uh, that big group of guys. We had our, our whole basketball team, so we got to meet after the match. And um, I just think, oh, that, yeah, yeah. and and the NBL there was just. I think they've done an amazing job, um, and they've taken it to the next level. But I do agree with you that uh, Steve needs to get back into the commentary box because they're definitely missing his uh, his analysis. Uh, well, I hope you can guys. find it in your heart to do us a favor, Steve. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for the love, fellas. And uh, thanks for coming on the show too, Luke. I mean, I like I said, I had the pleasure of interviewing you years ago and the stories that came out. I just definitely wanted our listeners to get a part of mm-hmm. it, so appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank Good on you, man. Thanks for thanks for having me involved. Thanks for remembering. Even it's a while ago now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, thanks so much, Luke. Like We're, an elephant, mate. Really appreciate you coming on Inside Slam, mate. And uh, yeah, like like Steve said, all the best in your in your future endeavors. Um, you know, professionally and also personally.
Thanks, guys. Good Thanks. on you. Thanks, Luke. That was great. I mean, it's it's almost like a. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's kind of hard to explain because I I grew up watching Luke Longley. I grew up watching the Bulls, and now to obviously hear his stories and firsthand, it's just it's just incredible to hear. And I I think it's even more special because he's not the type of guy you know. He, as you touched on, you know, people are talking about their brand. He's he's not like that at no. all, and he's not. I would. I, he comes across as not a super easy person to get to know. You know, he's very private. You know, he lives in a very secluded uh, community. Mm -hmm. And so when he shares a story with you, you really feel like you're in his inner circle, you know? Like I know we're on a podcast and you know, you know, there's thousands of people listening, but you know, you really feel like you're engaged in something special. And that's probably what makes this story so incredible to me. It's like insight that few are privy to. I think the word is authentic. There we go. He's authentic. You could, you could see me searching for a word. Absolutely. Yeah. I could see you searching. Yeah. You're like an encyclopedia. I know. A thesaurus. A thesaurus. Being true to yourself is basically who Luke Longley is. I mean, so many guys get caught up in the cliches. They go in, they'll go on an interview, they'll go on a podcast, they'll go on a TV show, and it's cliche after cliche. I'm like, come on, man. Give me something. Give me a, give me a real story. And that was amazing. You know what fans want? I know this is what I want. When I listen to an interview... I like to feel as if I'm at dinner with that guy and he's sharing a story with me, like some a tennis player talking about a point that he won or lost, which was the pivotal part of the match and why it was won or lost. And he lets you understand and feel what it's like to be in the brain of a champion as he's in the moment. And I get that type of feeling when I talk to guys like Luke Longley. And that's what being a commentator and when he's talking about he misses a game that's what he misses he misses being around the guys elite athletes doing extra special things on any given night sports so unpredictable that's what in the, in the first interview that i did with luke he was talking about he missed the highs and lows he said my life just pretty much goes at a level pace right now i miss you know when you're down and you come over you get over that adversity i miss the climb back up I miss the peaks, but I also miss working off the valleys. Yeah, and it was really, I mean... Or working out of the valleys. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. And it was interesting meeting him at the uh, at the Kings game, and the guy was, everyone, um, obviously in a post-match function, every, uh, uh, that's all everybody wanted was a photo with Luke Longin. He was so accommodating, you know, so many kids, and I could see that it was more the dads telling the kids, hey, this is Luke Longley, this is, this is the guy that played with Michael Jordan, you know, the greatest team ever. But yeah, he's just such a humble guy, and that's you know that's it's actually really refreshing because, like you said, he, he it felt like that he was here with us. It was it was so good. Yeah, yeah. Just want to say a quick thank you to the guys over at Cherry Australia's card shop. I literally grew up collecting basketball cards. I think in that early '90s period when Michael Jordan was playing, any teenager always collected basketball cards. So, but they're making a huge comeback, and I know Cherry Australia's card shop. They gave away a hundred thousand dollar Zion card last week. So, check out CherryCards.com. They ship worldwide. You can get any sort of brand that you want. It's going to be an amazing Christmas present if you want that for your kids as well. Steve's now looking at me with sunglasses on inside. Steve, did you were you ever on any of uh, the NBL cards or anything? Or do you have any collector's items cards? Well, I would, of course, consider it a collector's item. I have University of Iowa Steve Carfino card. Nice. I have a Hobart Devil Steve Carfino card and a 
Sydney King's Steve Carfino card. As a matter of fact, I have a Fox Sports commentator Steve Carfino card. None of them are worth much money. <laughs> well, I think they, they watered down the pot a little bit too much. I had too many of them. You know, you want a collector's card has got to be exclusive. There's just too many of them bouncing around. I'm going to stick with that story. The collecting part, though, is, you know, to get your favorite player. So it doesn't really matter if they're not worth much. You know, you're people's favorite player, you know, when they were a kid. And that's, you know, that's what really matters. You know, when I was collecting cards, my favorite player to collect was Anthony Hardaway. Not because he was the best player, but because it was just, you know, he was the player that I most associated with. But I'm, I'm glad it's kind of making a comeback because I've seen some of the cards these days. They're like, you know, 3D, they look incredible. And the fact that somebody from Cherry Cards picked up a $100,000 card, I mean, that's if that's not a reason to collect, I don't know what is. You know, I think it's more like, it's like an, an old-fashioned value. You know, it's something that can be valuable down the track. You hang on to it. It's not like something that's instantaneous. So I think that, you know, that part of it is is fantastic. And it's something that, you know, young kids can talk about. Oh, yeah, you've got this card. I'll trade this card with you. It's like personal interaction. And, and I love that about sport. You know, you're talking about the game at the water cooler. You know, you're talking about the game with your friends when you're out there hooping. Um, I think that it's all in the same vein. You know, collectibles. Absolutely. Like it started out with like stamps and then there was spoons and, you know. Spoons? Yeah. Like my, my grandma, she used to. You're a closet nerd, aren't you? No, my grandma, she used to collect spoons, spoons. spoons from around Your the world. Your grandma. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she. Man, you, you, I, you know, old fashioned old, values. I didn't want to go back that far. Yeah, Damn. That wasn't collecting me collecting spoons. spoons. But listen, these Crocheting. guys. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, it's almost like this just generations. I mean, you know, you have Pokemon and all that stuff. But I, I, if, you're, if you're into your sports. Make sure you check out Cherry Cards because they're down in Melbourne on King Street there. But the best thing about it these days, you just jump onto their website and you can get it delivered, you know, straight away. So don't have to go to Melbourne. You can go online and get all your favorite players. And yeah, could be a Christmas present or if it's like me, I'm just going to be start collecting them big from 2020. Um, well, this everybody, this is our Christmas special. So it's our last podcast of the year. Um, I've got some chocolate in front of Steve. I'm trying to get him to get into the chocolate pot. I don't. I don't know if he's going to have it. But I didn't even have lunch. You didn't I'm have, so disciplined. Mate. There was nothing on the menu you're, that I could eat. Yeah, a machine. Come on, That's do right. it. You're like Arnold. Um, <laughs> well, we we're, what we're going to do? We're going to get <laughs> we're going to get into our top three. We've actually got a bit of an audience today, so that's why I'm putting it on. But right. um, my niece and nephew are here from America, from LA. That's, that's right. That's it. LA represent. I know. Um, my sister's kids. You know, good-looking kids. We're related. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Confident, athletic. Yeah. <laughs> they're red. They're, they, they're not black now. They're red. That's how. That's how red. <laughs> oh, you're just gonna go. You're gonna go the race card. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you're embarrassing them. They're turning red. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, good luck recovering from that. Yeah, uh, Go ahead. Uh, yeah. iTunes have now banned us. <laughs> that goddamn hick. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Luke dropped a couple f bombs, didn't yeah, he? Exactly. We have to change it from G to like <laughs> adults only. Oh, jeez. But um, I love Christmas. I love Christmas because it's you know it's it's a good time of year. But I also enjoy the movie side of things. So I'm going to ask you your top three ever Christmas. Three, two, one? Three, two, one. Okay. And I want a story behind it. Okay. All right. So am I going to do three and you're going to do three? Yeah. I'm, you do three, I'll do three. Okay. Bad Santa. Oh, nice pick. <laughs> Billy Bob, right? 
Billy Bob Thornton. Boy, it was dark. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> he got a couple of roles after playing that one. He was so convincing as Bad Santa. You know, Bad Santa with a good heart. Yeah. I mean, he was bad too. He was. He was really bad. Yeah, they were criminals. They were criminals. Yeah. 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 Good, good pick. Yeah. My number three, and it's because I love him. It's Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Come oh, on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> put, put that cookie down. Yeah, okay. I don't even have to ask you why. <laughs> yeah. You have a reason to That's do that accent. number three. It's just because I want him. Okay, number two for me is Home Alone. We, yeah. All right, we've both got the same number two. So really? Oh, oh, God damn it. That is awesome. That's awesome. That means you've got good taste. Oh, we yeah. can keep hanging out. Absolutely. Macaulay Culkin. I mean, that was that, so. I was pre drugs, so good, so, I, so innocent. <laughs> you know, kids could enjoy that. Teenagers could enjoy that. Adults enjoy that. That's yeah. one of those timeless movies. You can always show that. And it doesn't matter how many times you've seen it. If it's on halfway through it, you're sitting down and you're watching it. It's must watch TV. Whenever it's on, Joe Pesci's hilarious. The white guy that nobody knows his name, he gets gets absolutely destroyed. He's like the, the funniest guy to watch. Oh, you mean the tall guy? Yeah. He did the voice. For um, the Wonder Years, really? Yeah, I I still can't remember his name though. It's like the you know, it's like the Pavarotti. You know, like you know, there's one of them. No one, you know, Domenico. There's one of them. Nobody yeah. ever remembers his name. Yeah, the, I don't. I just, what are they? I, the I three just, tenors. The three or tenors. Yeah. yeah, there's three of them. Yeah, that's you know. true. Can you remember all the Jackson Five's name? Yeah, exactly. Jackson Five is like this is like well, they're from the like 30s or 40s. No, I'm kidding. Okay, I'm just right. I'm just getting into your age again. Yeah. Well, I know Michael. Michael. Bobby. Bobby. No, I just made that up. Okay. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of them, but the Jackson trying, Five. I'm trying, I'm trying to look convincing. Michael. Yep. Marlon, who did all the dance moves. Yeah. Tito, who had the guitar or something like that. Was he like a Germain, me- Mexican that they put in? Jermaine. <laughs> yeah. You're doing my thing where you interrupted me. I, I that's my thing. Sorry. And Jackie is the fifth one. Jackson okay. Five. There you go. Okay. What were we talking about again? Okay. Uh, uh, movies. Christmas all right. movies. All right. Well, I'll go first with my number one. Okay. Die Hard. Oh, good one. Die Hard. Is oh, I'm kind of jealous that I didn't pick that one. Die but Hard. it would have been really boring if we had two and two, one. That's same. true. That's true. Because, guys, we don't actually do any prep here at Inside Slam. We just basically go bang, go. Yeah. Leah, our sound person, says, all right, guys, you're recording. So that's No one what out do. there is surprised, though. And they're like, oh, no. my God, no, I thought it was rehearsed. <laughs> yeah. This is our eighth take. Um, man, Die Hard for me is just like that ultimate Christmas movie the, especially the original Bruce Willis. I mean, it's just awesome. It's just that is an action movie formula right there. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just explain why my number one is number one, because I'm in a relationship. I'm in the love bubble, you mm-hmm. know. So I'm I'm watching my fair share of romantic movies. I'm not. Love actually is my number one. The soundtrack. You know, the warm, fuzzy feeling. And that's it for Inside Slam this week. Uh, We'll be back next year with a new co-host who actually has a set. I'm kidding. (laughs) What the heck was that? I know. What is, what's happened to you? I know. I'm thin, you know, I'm in a relationship. You used to be Mr. Magic. I watch what I eat. Not Mr. Meltdown. I don't drink anymore. My goodness. I hardly recognize it, myself. It, it's a good movie. Love, actually. It's a good movie. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've just expanded our audience now to the females, so thank you for doing that, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Um, My pleasure. There's a lot of good ones there. Hello, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and the world and he's back. <laughs> 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 uh, I can't believe we get paid for this. Um, 
we're going to wrap it up very, very shortly. But um, I can't believe. I mean, first of all, I can't believe it's already Christmas. I can't believe it next year's twenty twenty. It's been an interesting start to the NBA this year. You know, Luca just uh, luckily that his ankle injury he had an ankle injury a couple of days ago. Actually, it's not too serious that they're saying. But who's your MVP so far in uh, this season? LeBron. LeBron. LeBron is the MVP until somebody else is clearly better than him. I think LeBron should have been the MVP four more times than he has been. It's like LeBron could have had like five, yeah, probably yeah, four or five more. Same with MVPs. Michael Jordan. So, Jordan if, he should have been MVP every, every year. Every single year he played. Yeah, yeah exactly right. What about what about Giannis? Because Giannis is his points are up, his rebounds are up, all his percentages are up, and he won MVP last year. So why wouldn't you say Giannis? You can't shoot. What do you mean he can't shoot? He can't shoot. His percentages is up. His three-point percentage is up. His, field, his jump shot percentage is up. Well, I mean, can he shoot Can he shoot when it's when it matters? When it's on the line? When it's on the line, when it's game six or it's game seven and his team's going to get eliminated and the other team just packs it in and doesn't let him drive. Can he shoot then? So you want to – When his season's on the line. You wanna, I gotta, he's got to do it. He's, gotta, you he's gotta not see, tested. you got to see it first. To me, I don't think the MVP should be crowned until – after the playoffs. Yeah, I think that's the stupidest thing in the world yeah. to have a regular season MVP because at the end of the day, the NBA is about the playoffs. Yeah. And a lot of these guys, they just want to get make sure that by the time they hit the playoffs, they're right at 100%. So they might, they'll be like Kawhi Leonard last year. He made sure he got to the playoffs at 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's the stupidest thing that you, we give an MVP – to the regulars for the regular season, it's, it's it's insane. You know, there's a there's there's a number of names you can say as MVP candidates, and I'm not going to say, man, you crazy. You know, get off the crack pipe. I won't say any of that. I'll be like, you know, fair enough. But LeBron is my guy. You know, it's like he didn't make the playoffs last year. You know, he got Anthony Davis. He got a supporting cast, and they are playing the type of basketball that's like let's stay focused and let's win a championship. What about Anthony Davis? What about him? He is like he's a beast. So you don't think he's he's uh, oh, MVP? I'm not going to argue with you. You didn't say who. What number of players do you think might win the MVP? You said who do you think is going to win the MVP? Yeah, you got to be clear with me, bro. All right, you know, you All said right. one guy. I gave you one guy, and now you're arguing with my guy. No, who do you think? I am not arguing with LeBron, and I'm also as much as it not pains me to say it, but it's just it's. I'm just amazed by the guy. LeBron is MVP for me. Really? Uh, yeah. I've got him just ahead of Giannis um, because I just think the fact that the Lakers have the best record in the NBA, 21-3, and three, they beat Miami. My, it was Miami's first loss at home. So that was, I, I think, a really big win for them. But, yeah, LeBron for me has got the edge just over Giannis, then um, Harden. And I th- actually think Luke is probably top four for me. I think he's, he's averaging 31, 10, and 9. And this guy is a second-year guy. It's imp- it's amazing. So hopefully he comes back bigger and better from that ankle injury. It's, it's nothing too much to worry about. But I, it's, it's one of those things. James, people are like, oh, James Harden's got back-to-back 50 games, and, he's only, and he only shot seven three throws. Like, listen, the guy is an offensive weapon, but I don't know. There's just something that I just don't think he's at. That Le- um, I just think LeBron and Giannis are ahead of him. He is unstoppable. You know, Giannis is – the way he scores, it doesn't even look like it's fair. You know, it's like – you know what? Watching Giannis is like watching a guy in a dunk contest jumping jumping off a trampoline. That's how his game looks. It looks ridiculous. His arms are so long. It's like Inspector Gadget. Yeah, it doesn't even look fair. When he scores, it doesn't even look fair. When he blocks a shot, it doesn't even look fair. You know, so 
I'm not the type of person that, you know, like, and this is what bothers me about society. Don't get me going on this generation. But one thing that hey, bothers they're, me they're is looking at you now. If, yeah, <laughs> you know, if you are for something, that means you're against the other thing. No. You know, say, okay, like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I hate the police. Exactly. You know, like just because I think that they've got some definite points that are valid, that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't believe in the police. I don't believe in america you know like it's like okay you're against this you're against america it's like you're, you're against the troops you're, you know like it's like you're christian you hate gays that's not that's not yeah, the case stuff I, like that i know it's, i'm going on a bit of a rant here but you know like i can like lebron is the mvp right now he could be my favorite but when you say Giannis, i'm not like no way you know i'm not saying oh yeah uh james hard no i mean i don't enjoy watching him play you know i, I yeah. think the brother could trim his beard and look a little more tidy but that's my nature i'm virgo you know um, <laughs> I was surprised. You know what would be the funniest thing? You with a beard. No way. That would be so funny. I don't even have facial hair. Yeah. <laughs> if I did, I'd look like Morgan Freeman because it'd have, you know, gray all through it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a, you know. <laughs> what, was this, this yeah. your Morgan Freeman impression? <laughs> uh, I'll go with the fries. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is that? <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Well, listen, let's get into... Um, it's better than my New Zealand accent. Oh, oh God. I don't want to hear that. I'll have a big muck. <laughs> oh, bro. You can't, oh. you can't do a New Zealand yeah. accent like that, I mean, Who's your favorite actor? Oh, but, it's Brad Pitt. That's a terrible... It's Joyce. That's a terrible accent, it's Joyce. Bro. All right. Yeah. You need to stop. Fishing, all right. Fishing chops. Stop it. Stop okay, it. All right. We're doing your Who Am I. This is your last one. Actually... Okay. I'm going to give you two back-to-back, back, all right, because we've got a little bit of time. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. This must be a long-ass show. No? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lee's looking at me like, oh, yeah, it is. It yeah, is. Once again, Steve, you're right. Okay, so the, <laughs> the first one, this is your first film, Mike. Ready? Uh-huh. Born, and everybody, if you're uh, listening in, make sure you're not cheating and you're, and you're playing along at home. Um, born in 1993. 93, that's young. Oh, man. Went to Georgia college between 2011 and 2013 drafted in 2013 eighth pick so fairly high up in the draft georgia god this is young i don't do well the young guys go ahead he's only played for two teams he's played for the detroit pistons and the los angeles lakers i have no idea it's your favorite player my favorite player your favorite player that's not like that caldwell pope guy is it <laughs> <laughs> Kentavious Caldwell Pope. I don't even know his name. That's how bad he is. <laughs> so that was yeah. That's I thought you'd like that. You'd have to, you know, you have to be a hell of a player. I always say, you know, if you were going to wear pink shoes or fluorescent shoes, you got to have crazy game. If your name is Contavious Caldwell Pope, you better have. I mean, his name goes all around his number. That's how long his name is. That's ridiculous. You have to have crazy game to have a game to have a name like that. It's uh, just yeah. Is that it? You got another one for I got me? An, I got another one. This okay. is I, I, I think <laughs> that you, was a joke one, right? That was a joke one. Okay, thank right. you. Okay. So this one. <laughs> Your guy. <laughs> My guy. This guy, born in nineteen seventy one. Now you're talking. Old school baby. From Oakland, California. Oakland. Went to do you want me to even say the high school? If it's if it's Cali, yeah, sure. So he went to Encino in Alameda, California. In Encino in Alameda, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to three colleges. He went to Allen C.C. 
Antelope Valley and then finished at UNLV between 91 and 93. 71. He's born in 71. He went uh, fifth overall in the 1993 draft. Okay, I'm going to have a few cracks at this. I don't think I'm going to get it right away. Uh, is he? Is it? Is it Greg Anthony? It's not Greg Anthony. Okay. Stacy Ogman? No. No. He played from 93 to 2001. He was drafted by... I was actually going to ask uh, Luke Longley about him, but uh, he was drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves. <gasps> J.R. Ryder. No. No. Damn. I thought he was from Oakland. Oh. You know I'm going for the ghetto guys because Oakland is a rough ass area. When, when you say J.R. Ryder, you, you mean... The dunk contest J.R. Ryder. Isaiah Ryder. Oh, him, yeah. Yeah, that's him. You got it. All right, okay. Yeah. Isaiah Ryder. Goes, yeah. Yeah, okay. Isaiah uh, Isaiah Ryder Jr. Yeah, ninety four dunk dunk yeah. contest. Champion. You see, I was just going all the ghetto cats, yeah, all the guys that were getting th- fined for fights I think from Oakland. Is he in jail now? Something like that. So I think something happened to him after court. Yeah. Um, I don't want to yeah. stereotype a brother, but you know, yeah, after his NBA, is uh, he did some jail time, but he was a, he was a, he was a, he was oh a, he was an athlete he was an athlete Ooh, yeah. yeah yeah. It was at that time where everybody's like, oh, the next Jordan, like Harold Minor and all oh that. Oh, my God. Wasn't that the curse of death? Baby Jordan, they you called got, him. You got, if you got compared to Michael Jordan, that was like a curse. No, A absolutely. Jordan curse. It's the only person that Grant lived, Hill. Kobe was the only one that lived up, really. Yeah. So. All right, guys. Well, listen, that is, that's it, Steve. Until when? Merry Christmas. Uh, really? Yeah, that's okay. it. That's, uh, that's it for 2019. Merry, Christmas, Merry Christmas, brother. Appreciate it. Had a lot of fun with you this year. You know, we're going to come back bigger and be- better in 2020. Yeah, it's okay. been a really good year for Inside Slam. And um, yeah. what what are, you, what are you doing over the Christmas uh, New Year period anyway? Um, I'm hoping to get a Christmas bonus. <laughs> 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 no, I'm just going to spend some time with my family. Obviously, my niece and nephew are here from from the States. I've never been here in Australia. Uh, get to see, you know, my son and my daughter. Hopefully they get some time away from work. Yep. Uh, we usually do a Christmas bre- breakfast with their mother and then um, they go off to Wollongong and um, I'll spend that time with my, my partner. Mm-hmm. I've got some time off, you know, during the school holidays because, you know, Barker College is off until February. Yep. And then um, get a chance to go to Hobart and then, you know, just get stuck in the second half of the season because we play in term four and term one. So, you know, we're looking to bounce back and have an improvement in term one. Looking for that first W. I wasn't going to mention that, but yes, yeah. Hey, that's you got to no. you got to start somewhere, right? This is trust. The, you're li- literally trust the process. Yeah. You know, trust trust Steve. That's true. I mean, you know, like we're working on the culture, and you know, the culture is you know you got to take your lumps and improve when yeah. uh, things aren't going your way. Absolutely. For those listening in in the U.S., Christmas uh, in Australia is. Super, super hot. Yeah. It's not cold at all. No. Um, it's by the pool. It's playing cricket in the backyard. This is, this is what I do with my it's family. It's driving on the left side of the road. It's driving on the left side of the road. But yeah, it's like cold meats, lunch, you know, prawns, all that sort of stuff. It's- Naked bodies. I mean, sorry. Um, I, we did go to a beach. They were, they were topless. You Listen, know, my niece just, and nephew were like, damn, just because, really? Just because I'm single now, you don't need to be putting all my <laughs> extracurricular activities I on, didn't even on, notice. on the air. They had to tell me I didn't even notice. <laughs> I told you. Love Actually is my favorite Christmas movie. That's it. Yeah. Merry Christmas from uh, all of us here at Inside Slam and a happy new year. Uh, we will see you guys. We'll be back second week of January. Don't forget to follow us. If you're not following us, make sure you follow us on Instagram, uh, Inside Slam, and also Global Story Network. Make sure you follow that on Instagram, 
Twitter and globalstorynetwork.com to find our podcast and a whole bunch of others. And we will see you next year. <laughs>